peace, everybody out there in the cosmos, sending love and light. This podcast episode is with Sayyid Muhyiddin Al-Atas, who is a young scholar from Malaysia. I sat down with him outside of Kuala Lumpur at the University of Life, which is a retreat center that his father founded. His father, uh, the beloved, beautiful man, Habib Hussein Al-Atas, um, and that retreat center is one of my favorite places on earth. I've, we've done retreats there on Sufi poetry, on Rumi, on spirituality, art, and hopefully we'll do uh, more in the future. But it's a place that I try to visit every time I'm in uh, Malaysia. And Habib Hussein is uh, one of my favorite, very special and unique individuals. And... Uh, now I've met his son, Sayyid Muhyiddin, a few times, and he's a young scholar in the philosophical school of Sayyid Naqib al-Atas. Sayyid Naqib al-Atas is one of the most prominent uh, Muslim philosophers in the world and definitely one of the most prominent thinkers in Nusantara, Southeast Asia. So we sat down and talked about Sayyid Naqib al-Atas and his thought. He recently wrote a, a master's thesis on the conception of the West in the thought of Sayyid Naqib al-Atas. And so uh, we talked about that, and we talked about um, the influence that Sayyid Naqib has had on the West and, or on the East and the West because he has also figured prominently in the uh, development of the thought of some of the prominent Muslim thinkers in the West. And, uh, yeah, we had a great talk there at the University of Life. Um, it kind of, I was laughing to myself because obviously we we hear a lot about Orientalism, which is this idea of the people in the West, Europeans and Americans, having certain conceptualizations of the East, the Orient, and, uh, of course, uh, Edward Said had the famous book, Orientalism, showing the certain stereotypes and certain tropes and things like that. But it's really interesting, if you think about it, this is kind of like the, the opposite of that. This is Occidentalism, right? In the sense that you have people's great philosophers, great thinkers from the Orient reflecting on the West and the thought of the West and the development of the intellectual history of the West and how that relates to Islam and Muslims in the East. So I think it's a topic that's, that's uh, very fruitful and really important. So we sat down and we had, we had a great discussion. Uh, my friend Dustin Cron was also there, so you'll hear him. Uh, he was just quiet most of the time, but a few times in there he was like, uh, he asked a few questions or offered some reflections. So that's the third voice that you hear there. Um, we were in the jungle, so you're probably going to hear some jungle in the background. Um, yeah, so before I give you the podcast, just want to say thank you to everybody for supporting. It's been really beautiful for me to see the podcast grow and to see, you know, I, I get emails all the time of people who who like the podcast or who liked a specific one or who say they want want a specific guest or a specific topic. Um, if you do 
if you if there's someone that you think would be great to have on the podcast, feel free to send me a message, connect at barkablue.com and uh, give your suggestions. Um, I'm always looking for, for new, interesting people, and there's no shortage of those type of people. So let me know. Um, I try to do the podcast as much as I can in person because there's definitely something lost, I think, when you do it um, over the phone or over Skype. But I have done a few of these over Skype, and uh, a few of the ones that I have coming up are over Skype as well. You know, there's certain people that it's hard to get in the same room with them, and I really want to have a conversation. So in lieu of the fact that I'm not able to be in the same room at the same time as them, um, I've done a few of those. But whenever I can get in the same physical space as someone, I I prefer to do that. So, um, but yeah, anyone on earth that you think would be good on the podcast, feel free to send a a message uh, to that email. And also any topic, if you think there's a topic that would be good to discuss, uh, feel free to mention that as well. And uh, yeah, any other comments you have, I really appreciate people's comments and reflections. Um, even some people have sent me like critiques or concerns they had with some of the podcasts or they didn't, uh, they didn't agree with certain things that were said. Um, and that's cool too, actually. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, that's to be expected also. I mean, my intention with the podcast is not to necessarily like advocate a specific paradigm or, you know but actually to have diverse voices and people that I may not agree with 100% um, or people that come from different paradigms or schools of thought or or backgrounds. And I believe that in the diversity of voices that there's something rich and something that enriches us. Um, Even and perhaps even especially when those points of view are different than our own. So, yeah. That's that's my uh, two cents on that matter. Um, yeah, so, and of course, you can keep supporting by word of mouth. That's how this spreads. Um, and it's beautiful to see the listenership grow. And, uh, you know, I can tell on, on the, the SoundCloud um, where people are listening from. And it's li- literally like every country you could imagine. Um, maybe one of these coming up I can read like the top 20 countries because it's like every continent and some of them are kind of surprising and interesting um yeah so rate it on iTunes and all that stuff and if you have the financial means to support and you like what we're doing you want to keep see it keep maintaining and growing um you can support on Patreon which is our page, I think, is patreon.com slash path and present. Um, and a lot of people that are supporting are just giving like $1 a month or $5 a month, which is awesome. Um, and that's really great. A few people are giving more than that, a lot more. But those that are giving, uh, you know, a small amount or those who are like, yeah, I can't really part with $100 a month, uh, don't think that you can't benefit because if you could, if everybody who's listening and who digs it and want, wants to see it maintain um, supports with a dollar, would be smooth sailing, and I would not have to uh, continue to even mention these type of things. But um, yeah, so if you can support, 
All right, listen, I'm going to let you guys into the conversation. So here it is. Sayyid Muhyiddin Alatas. Basically, maybe you could tell us uh, who is Said Naqib Al-Atas and tell okay. me about your research and your writing and your uh, dissertation, your thesis about him. Okay. And uh, his importance all right. for Malaysia and for the world. Yeah, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, Professor Naqib Al-Atas, uh, well, let me begin by, by my, my own studies of him. Uh, after I, I, I finished a, a first degree in politics and philosophy and economics from uh, Otago University in New Zealand uh, as a youth, and I think uh, many people who are of my age uh, struggling with, with our identity and struggling with, with, um, with, the moder- with modernity as well as being Muslim within modernity, the students of Professor Nakib Alatas and his ideas are unique. That is because uh, not only are they able to present to us uh, the meaning of the religion of Islam in a manner uh, that is fitting for the modern world, but at the same time, they show uh, a good grasp and mastery of also the Western intellectual tradition. So um, when I studied at Cassis, the, 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 the center started by one, one Muhammad Noor, uh, Professor Nakib's student, I... I chose for my dissertation the study of Professor Nakib Alatas's conception of the West. Mm. Um, that is because uh, amongst his peers, uh, he has unique insights in, uh, uh, on Western culture and civilization. Mm-hmm. Professor Nakib Alatas, in, in his youth, uh, began his academic studies on Sufism as practiced and understood amongst the Malays. He focused his work on two of the greatest thinkers ever produced uh, who wrote in the Malay language. And these are Sheikh Hamza Fansuri and Sheikh Nuruddin Ar-Raniri. Hamza Fansuri and Nuruddin Ar-Raniri were, were men of Tasawuf. And men of Tasawuf, but at the same time, um, the Tasawuf that they represent was in, in, in the same line as that of Al-Ghazali, Ibn Arabi, as well as taking into consideration the Persian intellectual system, the likes of Rumi, uh, in terms of its illusions, Hafiz. These were all part and parcel of the systems of Hamza Fansuri and Nuruddin Ar-Raniri. And so what the, year did they live? Or what uh, century? These two, they, were, uh, um, they wrote and lived in the 16th and 17th centuries. Hamza Fansuri in, in the late 1500s, on the 16th century, and Nuruddin Ar-Raniri, he was the Sheikhul Islam, which is the, the highest position in terms of uh, spiritual and intellectual leadership in this part of the world, of Aceh, between the years 1637 and 1644. So in terms of centuries, uh, Nuruddin Ar-Raniri, which was the peak of the Malay intellectual tradition, were contemporaries with uh, René Descartes of, uh, of, the, of France, as well as uh, Mullah Sadra of Iran, and Abdullah ibn Alawil Haddad of Hadramun. So you can see 17th century is, is, the, 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 is the century where most of the uh, traditions reach maturity. And the Malay intellectual tradition reached its maturity with Nuruddin Ar-Raniri in the 17th century. And Professor Alatas began his studies with these two great thinkers. And in these two great thinkers, what he began to see, first through their system, 
was that they presented Tasawwuf as a philosophical system comprising of a cosmology, of an ontology, meaning a discussion on existence, on the nature of its existence, and the nature of human psychology. And out of this, what he gradually discovered was that the entirety of the Malay world, and this comprised Malaysia, Indonesia, and all the islands of the archipelago, Nusantara. the Nusantara, that they all were undergoing a rapid process of intensification in terms of changes in their worldview or how they looked at the world. In particular, they were now struggling with the conception of existence. Initially, they understood existence as the Greeks might, might have understood it, in the idea that existence means to be in something. The Malay word for, for, for existence is to other, and for being as jadi, meaning to say comprising change from one state to another state, corruption and generation. But with metaphysical tasawuf, what they gradually was undergoing was the understanding that existence need not necessarily be limited to what the language has conceived. And for this to happen, not only must their intellects grow, but the language needed to grow. And this was what led Professor Nakib Alatas to formulate what he called the, the, the view of the Islamization of the Malay archipelago. And this Islamization meant that this language which was initially uh, a, a relatively undeveloped language used by coastal peoples for trade, would become a scientific language capable of discussing scientific and philosophical matters. Now, from these early studies of, of Professor Nakib Alatas, gradually, by, uh, by the end of his PhD, he had already formulated this, this idea about Malay civili- um, the Malay archipelago or Dunusantara as a civilization possessing all the, the, the requirements of a civilization. And he also conceived of a, a center, an institute, that would study all the elements that was necessary ingredients in terms of, of the, the, the continuity of this tradition. But somehow, along the way, we will see in, this, in the 70s, he published his, I think, uh, in terms of uh, international presence, his most noteworthy book, which is called Islam and Secularism. Uh, Islam and Secularism has been hailed as, uh, by, by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf at least as one of the most important works in the past century. This is because it, it, it deals with matters of prime importance, the, the, the idea of secularization as a philosophical program and how it impacted Western civilization and how through its impact upon Western civilization it was gradually impacting all the other cultures in the world. And secularization, uh, Professor uh, Alatas here identifies as a problem, not necessarily because of its political aspect, the idea that uh, of separation of state and, and religion, nor its economic aspect, the separation of church and society. But more fundamentally, secularization that he found problematic was the secularization as a philosophical program wherein nature became disenchanted of any spiritual elements. And it involves also the desacralization of politics. And it involves also the deconsecration of values. These three aspects made man the measure of all things. These three aspects also made, for the first time, catastrophe upon the three kingdoms of nature. 
Because now suddenly, man is understood as a separate being from the entirety of existence, having no connection whatsoever. And at, at the same time, having no connection with God, who is the creator and the sustainer and the source of values. So as a result, this new conception of science and conception of knowledge that was developing in, in the from the European civilization and gradually through colonization impacting the world, it was leading to imbalances in the ecological spheres, the economic spheres, the societal spheres, leading to gross injustices in the world. But his analysis in that work, Islam and secularism, is not limited to just how the West underwent secularization, but explains this, this process vis-a-vis Islam. He said that in contrast to Western culture and civilization, the, the religion of Islam was not a cultural religion. Christianity, on the other hand, uh, or rather how he understood Western Christianity, on the other hand, was a sophisticated form of a cultural religion due to, precisely due to, uh, to its historical circumstances. In particular, he has in mind the Latinization of Christianity having shifted its uh, center from Jerusalem to Rome. And the, the inward theological and political changes. So as a result, the secularization of the West uh, is for him, although it became universalized, need not necessarily be something which was universal. So in other words, the secularism is almost like a natural outgrowth of the nature of the way that Christianity or the teachings of Jesus were Latinized. Yes. So it it was almost inevitable that it would lead to secularism. Is that what? Yes. In what? So what are some of the ways that 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 he argues that? Well, firstly, it was because of the this, the the environment in which Christianity initially flourished. Remember that Paul um, was a Hellenized Jew, and that mean, that meant that uh, in order for him to introduce Christianity some of the earliest symbols of Christianity had to be presented in uh, the Greek, uh, the Greco-Roman symbolic forms. And furthermore, um, Paul's break with the other students or disciples of Jesus uh, meant also uh, the introduction and the removal of certain aspects of the teachings of Jesus. In particular, uh, we know historically, and not just from Muslim sources, that um, the introduction of Jews to the uh, Christianity to the non-Israelis or the non-Jews uh, meant the the removal of the legal aspects of Judaism. Also, Christianity lacked the uh, the theological foundations that would characterize Judaism and Islam. Right. And some of these elements, alongside the, the, the development of Christianity as a, 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 a within the Aristotelian uh, naturalism and rationalism meant that somehow Christianity became fused with the existing culture and existing philosophies around it. But as the religion would develop and as it spread itself amongst the European peoples, more and more of these elements became, shall we say, more pronounced. And in particular, in the 13th and 12th, uh, in the 12th and 13th centuries, with the contact of, uh, with the contact with Islamic civilization, you came, you come to see 
further developments of these Aristotelian elements within Christianity. So some of these elements, which are uh, which are most natural to the, the the development of secularization, according to Prof. Alatas, was the dualistic conception that somehow religion and science had to be separate. Religion and philosophy had to be separate. Where philosophical aspects of the religion is concerned, it is left to rational theology and gradually philosophy of religion. But religion, as it presents itself to the community, to the people, was done primarily through aesthetic means, primarily through the, the, the mediacy of the church, primarily through the means of uh, place and all these other aesthetic elements. Now, these are some of the, the, the fundamental elements that, that, that led Western Christianity, at least, to become secularized. And in the 20th century, their own theologians, the likes of Karl Barth, the likes of um, Paul Tillich, and the other, in particular, Protestant theologians, the leading German theologians also, they, they had the, 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 the idea that Christianity needed to be de-Hellenized. Right. The, 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 the Hellenic or the Greek elements needed to be removed from, from Christianity in order for it to return to the teachings of Jesus. But what can they fall on? Yes. Right. And at the same time, the European thinkers who were trying to move away from Christianity were saying we can do that by reclaiming the legacy of the Greeks and trying exactly. to, you know, and then there's a whole idea of the Dark Ages, yes. right? They say, oh, we went through the kind of Christian millennium, a thousand years of, yes. of ignorance because, mm. you know, locating this idea that the Greeks were the first scientists, the first rational thinkers and yes. things of that nature. Yes. So, but just to like, for those who don't know the history, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm fascinated with early Christian history. Yes. But from my understanding, the early followers of Jesus were led by James, who, yes. you know, the first source say the brother of Jesus. He, yes. Perhaps he was a cousin or perhaps had some relation. But in any case, they considered themselves, you know, the children of Israel. They considered themselves exactly. uh, with following the Mosaic law. Yes. And they considered themselves those that just accepted Jesus as a Messiah that came to challenge some of the, the ways that the, the, the community of followers of the Torah had kind of left it or yes. had, had gone astray in certain ways. And so then Paul basically starts preaching, like you say, to the Hellenic world outside of the Jewish community. And... The historical record shows that Paul was actually called back by James to Jerusalem and questioned about some of the strange teachings. So it's argued that the idea of the divinity of Jesus and the Trinity and these type of things were actually Paul's creation. And a lot of it was, how do I speak to these people that haven't heard about Judaism and how do I basically present the message of Jesus to them? Yes, and these these are these fundamental ideas. They they seem to be in line with how the Quran presents the, the idea. You see, for example, the, the Quran says that uh, the Prophet Isa, it is stated that wa Rasulan ila bani Israel. He was a prophet sent to the the, the people of Israel. Musaddikan lima bayna minat Taurat. His work is to confirm what is true in the Torah. And also to declare the coming of the prophet, a prophet after him, whose name would be Ahmad. Mm -hmm. Now, Prophet Alatas, when contemplating this verse, he said that. Just a second. What is that sound? It's just the nature. That's just the bugs. Yes, these are the bugs. Oh, okay, they just got super loud. I was like, is that a machine or something? Yeah, bugs. Yes. Can't stop that. Yeah, they're, 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 they're the green green bugs. 
Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, it is stated that they, 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 they live for only a week in their lives. So, you know, if, if you only live for a week, you better start screaming, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Praising God that whole week. Right. Uh, loudly. Yeah. Either that or their mating call. They're trying to find yeah. a mate before they die. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, okay. okay. So, um, yes. Uh, when, when, when it is stated there that the Prophet Isa, alayhi salam, was was to declare the coming of a prophet after him. His name would be Ahmad. Prophet Lata said that we know that, that prophets traditionally will have students around them and students who have established relations or disciples who have established relations with the prophets, we know that they're not just going to um, be say, satisfied only with the name without also asking for the description of the religion that would come, the man that would come. And this is how we know, and it is not too far to extrapolate, that from here, the disciples understood the, the, the nature of the final religion becoming a universal religion. And so it is that from these discussions or these, these ideas, gradually arose the desire for some amongst the people who, who, who listened to the, the khabar or the reports from, from Jesus, to want to develop a religion that was meant to the, the, the Banu Israel, the Israelites, to be developed into a universal force. And to somehow, uh, to compete with how God would, would intend for it to, to happen in the religion of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. But since it was never meant to be like that as a, as a, as a divine uh, message, as a result, the, the development became so unnatural that it, would, it was mixed with cultural, philosophical, traditional elements such that this religion came to appropriate certain symbols which are not entirely their own. It came to appropriate certain epistemological systems. And by epistemology, I mean the theory of knowledge. Uh, one particular statement that Professor Alata said, is, uh, quoting uh, their own uh, theologians, was that as a result of the, the mixture of Christianity with Hellenic means of thinking, theolo- theology in the Judaic sense became stunted and restrict, restricted to the playpen of human philosophy and to the kindergarten of human thought. But uh, an intellectual tradition, a spiritual tradition like Islam, on the other hand, with the Quran being reported uh, tawatur, in the sense that it is reported by a group of people whom the mind cannot conceive together, uh, conceive that this, uh, this group of people would purpose together upon the lie, the Quran was, the, uh, was, was reported by a chain of sahaba through a chain of uh, tabi'in and through a chain of scholars such that the, we know that the Quran as we receive today is the, the, the actual Quran received by the Prophet. Yeah. And as a result of that, the intellectual tradition of Islam can develop from its own roots. Mm, in a cohesive way. Yes, yeah. in a cohesive, in a coherent way without undergoing some of these... Um, inventions or innovations well that's what i was going to ask because i would imagine you know someone uh could could ask okay christianity comes into the hellenic world and is deeply influenced by hellenic thought how is that different from the way that islam comes into say the persian world or nusantara for that matter or other civilizations isn't it true that there is a uh, some type of interaction between the 
pre-existing intellectual world and, and, and philosophical world and just the outlook and language, right? The yeah. idea that language also contains a worldview. How, did, how, is, what, how is that different? Okay. So the, the, the difference fundamentally is due to the nature of the Quran in itself. We, know, we now know that there is no extant uh, copy of any of the statements of Jesus. Mm-hmm. If there, there are, these are collections of the, uh, the written documents uh, and we know that if, uh, by, by the apostles. Uh, but nothing directly from the mouth of Jesus. But with regards to the Quran, um, at least where the, 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 the intellectual tradition of Islam is concerned, no one can dispute that it is the actual word coming from the Prophet Muhammad. Right. And according to, to Muslims, we say that even though it, it came from the Prophet Muhammad alone, we also affirm that it contains something which is in the nature of mu'jizah. Meaning to say it weakens the, the argument of the opponent who denies that it is a message from God. The descriptions in the Quran pertaining to the, 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 the reality and the nature of God is in his own words. Yes, we affirm the Quran to be God's description of himself in his own words. And it describes the relations between him and his creation. It also describes at the same time the ultimate end of man. So it has its own world view meaning to say its own description of reality. And it is revealed in an Arabic, which is a, the Quran describes as a non-crooked language. Non-crooked means the Quran is a qawlum mubin. It is a, a, a clear verse. So the, the Quran as a whole and the Arabic that is used to support this divine discourse is, is what preserves the worldview of Islam intact. Now, when we say that uh, the, the Quran became spread to different parts of the world, the process through which these other languages come to adopt and come to represent and come to represent the reality as presented in the Quran, now this process has been identified by Professor Nakib Alatas as the Islamization mm-hmm. of a language, of a culture, of a worldview. And Islamization is defined here as the liberation of the mind or of man from an animistic mythological, magical, and ultimately secular control of his reason and language. Mm. So this liberation leads man to return to his state of fitrah. And we also have a, an additional belief that the, the souls of man were created in a state of fitrah, meaning to say knowing of God. And this state of fitrah is affirmed due to the covenant that all souls of uh, the sons of Adam sealed with God in the day of Alastu. This in reference to Quran Surah 7, Surah Al-A'raf, the verse 172, wherein Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He said that, وَإِذْ أَخَذَ مِنْ بَنِي Adam, We took from the sons of Adam, مِنْ him From his dhuriyah or his descendants. Mm-hmm. And we brought them all before us. And Allah then said to them, Alastu بِرَبِّكُمْ Am I not your Lord? And therefrom, the sons of Adam collectively answered, yes. And this answering, first, is a symbol that the souls of man already have recognized God. And this, is a, uh, it, this adds it to the, the significant statement by the Sufis who said that, mm-hmm. isn't it? The beginning of religion is knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. Some, some, some people take this to mean that you therefore must begin your, your study of the religion by knowledge of God. 
But in reality, the soul was created in a manner before it's coming into this world has already known God. Awaluddin ma'rifatullah. The beginning of religion is already knowledge of God. So coming into this world, being brought into this world, our purpose is to return to our initial state. Right. And also, you know, yes. ma'rifa is different than ilm, right? Ma- yes. and, and especially in the context of the, the Quranic, really, you know, story of, of humankind is that all souls were on in the divine presence. Yes. So this was a knowledge of witnessing, ma'rifa, yes. of, yes. of, of experiential knowledge, of yes. knowing Allah. Yes. In, in an intimate way, in, yes. in a direct way, yes. not through hearing about it. Yes. So that at the core of our being, what you're saying and what Prophet uh, Abbas is saying is that we have this experiential knowledge of really of witnessing God. Yes. Yes. Um, and let me just add, the Malay word uh, distinguishes between knowledge, which is al-ilm, and uh, that which is ma'rifa. In, in the Malay language, we have for knowledge or al-ilm, what we call tahu, yes? And in, in the Malay language, the word tahu can be applied to most things, including that which is non-living. Mm-hmm. You can say you know of relations of things, its function, its mm-hmm. uses. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about ma'rifa, which is illuminative knowing, which is experiential knowing, this can only be described of two living things, mm-hmm. two intelligent things, two knowing things. Professor Alatas has, has described this in an, an analogical fashion through uh, a story about supposing we wish to know somebody, uh, a, a man who has just moved to our neighborhood. What we can d- discover through elm or through knowledge is perhaps where he lives, uh, the number of children he might have, and uh, the sort of things that we can discover via observation. But for ma'rifah to happen, illuminative knowledge to happen, there needs to be at least four conditions that needs to be fulfilled. The first is that in terms of ma'rifah, the person who is to be known must have a desire to be known. If there is no desire to be known, then ma'rifah cannot happen. Secondly, there must be some similarity between the knower and the known. Because if you were to illumine something of your presence, of your reality, that person must be able to sustain it. That's why you cannot have, for example, ma'rifah when it comes to cats. I mean, although people imagine their relations with, with animals and pets because of familiarity over time, but real uh, ma'rifah happens via disclosure. Thirdly, the, the relation must be of a significant time. And this is because time factor here is required for trust to be built. And then finally, the one who is approaching the person being approached, he has to abide by certain regulations and laws. It could be uh, what, what has been set by society. It could be rules and laws of etiquette. It could be adab. Now, why, why does he put these four conditions in terms of attaining ma'rifah? It is so that we can have a sense of what it means for a human being to attain to the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Firstly, where desire to be known is concerned, Prophet Alatas quotes the Hadith Al-Qudsi, the divine Hadith reported by the Prophet wasallam, wherein Allah said, Kuntu kanzan makhfiyan, I was a hidden treasure and I desired to be known, that, so therefore I created creation in order that I may be known. So this desire to be known by Allah Taala is also what led him to reveal the Qur'an. 
through the Prophet. He was the one who gave us this great blessing to the Prophet Muhammad and he protected it in terms of its veracity, its being unchanged, its unchangeableness and its not changing. This Quran is a, is a record of the conversation that happened between Allah and the Prophet but since it is also God's speech, it is his continuous speech So such that if the Quran talks about uh, and he creates other things, that means he is still in a state of creating other things. So ever new things are coming into creation as we speak. Secondly, when, when it comes to similarity between the knower and the known, God said that although man is, is not God and God is not man, but yet we know that there is a divine spark within the human soul. And this is the ruh. And it, and it is stated there, وَنَفَخْتُ فِيهِمْ in ruhi. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blew into the body of man of his spirit. And this intelligential spirit of man, the, the hearing, the seeing, and the knowing spirit has the capacity to know God through God's gift. And then thirdly, it is something which is established over time. And the person who pursues has to abide by certain rules and regulations. These are the Arkanul Islam and the Arkanul Iman, the foundations of this, this religion, such that through, through long service of ibadah, eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will strengthen the trust which He has initially placed upon you. He purifies your soul and the soul is likened like a mirror until eventually He may bestow some of His ma'rifah. So that's, that's, these, uh, these are the, 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 uh, the, the ma'rifah which we talk about, uh, which I suppose protects the, the civilization of Islam from corruption, from coming into contact with other traditions. It, it does not mean that Islam was not impacted or does not utilize other traditions because the Prophet himself said that uh, wisdom is the lost property of the Muslim. Wherever he finds it, he should collect it. And you should seek knowledge even as far as China. But knowledge in Islam has always been understood in this two set, twofold sense. One, one sense of the, 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 the word knowledge means knowledge for pragmatic use, meaning to say knowledge of technology, the knowledge that would fulfill the requirements of the society, uh, knowledge for, um, for living. And this kind of knowledge, we affirm, it is not found within the tradition of Islam alone. So that's why the Prophet said, seek knowledge even as far as China. Because the, uh, even during that time, it is known some of the technologies of the Chinese that were discovered. And that also may be the reason why the Malay world was known to the Prophet. Yes, the Nusantara was known to the Prophet because there's a product in Fansur, in present-day Aceh, in Barus, where Hamza Fansuri came from, that can only be uh, found and located in this region of the world. It is camphor, yes, kapo, Barus. So that's why in Arabic also we have the word for, for camphor, kafur. Hmm. And kafur, here, what in Malay we call kapo, has this property that it is used to, to, to cover the sense of the dead. Hmm. It is closely related with the, the, the Arabic word kufur. Kufur means to cover up the truth. Mm. And kafur means something that covers up a bad smell. Mm. And kafur, traditionally in history, in the, in the records of, of, of trade by uh, Al-Mas'udi and other geographers in the intellectual tradition of Islam, have, all, has, have consistently been located in this region. So we have good reason to, to, to assume and to believe that um, there is one statement in the oldest extant uh, historical or historical work here in this part of the world called the Hikayat Samudra Pasai, 
there it is stated that the the the, the author says qala rasul the prophet said he said the prophet said although he does not provide the sanad for this he said the prophet said when you hear of a kingdom yes underneath the wind or beneath the wind below the wind samudra its name it says prepare your equipments and start traveling there and spread islam from from, the, for, from that region will be seen scholars as well as awliya now historically although there has never been scholars who have been able to find the sanad of this hadith we know that historically this has become a reality through the founding of the islamic civilization over here So, I think you point out something interesting, which is the idea that um, when I think Western people think about secularism, we think about, like you said, the separation of church and state, uh, the desacralization of, of secular authority, because in many traditional societies, the ruler is seen as like, a god or representative of god or the yeah. gods um and you know this comes as a reaction in many ways to in europe the fact that people are fighting over religion and and and, and in many ways the, the papal authority becomes corrupt and there's issues with people saying okay you can buy indulgences in other words you can buy your way out of hell if you pay the and and just there was a general level of corruption um and in fact it seems pretty true that throughout human history uh worldly power mixed with religion is a bad combination even in islam there's been very few moments right we look at like you know the caliph umar Aziz as like the fifth caliph because around him, around before him and after him there were a lot of people that weren't very righteous so he stands out i mean even in the early period yes. but i think what you're saying uh sanaqibul atas is highlighting is that secularism is only secondarily these things but it's primarily a world view that there's certain philosophical underpinnings and assumptions about the nature of reality that secularism holds and i think a lot the average kind of western person or the average other person would say what's wrong with secularism because we want to all get along right we we want to we're going to live in these multicultural global civilizations you know it's hard if we if we govern society based on your religion or my religion or any religion so let's just agree to separate it but what he's saying is that the 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 thing we need to understand is 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 the actual philosophical underpinnings of secularism. Yes. Is that true? And if so, what are what is what are some of the unquestioned assumptions or the world view of secularism? Yes. Um the thing about the history of secularism uh and this is this is something not just professor Alatas is saying. Uh, somebody by the name of Charles Taylor from McGill University, yes, from Canada, he has written a work called uh, A Secular Age in which he said that the secular age that we're living in is as you as you described Uh, it's not necessarily the the loss of religion from society because people are always going to be religious but what he says is that now uh, there's so many choices through which one can conceive of life such that 
in at least in the public sphere, you cannot think about one religion dominating other religions. Now, but let's let's just um, let's just think again about this term secularism. First, in terms of where it came from, because it is not it is inseparable from its history. In particular, because the term seculum, uh, which means the here and now, was a coinage uh, paradoxically by the of the church. Yes, because they were in the past. Uh, they had two kinds of priests. There were the ecclesiastical priests, those who were um, uh, who devoted them their their lives, uh, such as the Benedictine Benedictine monks, and the the other for, the the, uh, the other um, orders that arose mm-hmm. in the fifth and sixth centuries. Yes, the the Franciscan, the, Dom, the Dominican orders, uh, the Mendican and the non-Mendican orders. These were the, the, the monks who were ecclesiastical in nature. They devoted themselves to the afterlife or living um, above this, this realm, which is considered for them as something to be denigrated. Yet, at the same time, they were secular priests. And these secular priests, priests they deal with the secular people. And the secular people were the laity. The laity, because the French, say, uh, I mean, uh, for, for, for secularism, they call it laicism, meaning to say the laity, the common mass of people who, who were non-religious, who were, uh, in a sense, uh, whose conduct of life is worldly. Right. Yes? So as a result, when, when secularization became developed, I mean, already in, initially in the seeds, when it became developed as a philosophical program, all these roots are still part of it, but it's now become a tree. When, so when you describe secularization, what needs to happen in, in our minds is to be able to see the entire history of the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, including also Martin Luther's activity, uh, the rise of the Reformation, all these other processes in nature wherein the secular realm is now somehow opposing the powers that be. Included in this is the, 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 the very interesting fact or the very interesting historical episode of the Copernican Revolution. Now, in reality, what was the Copernican Revolution? It was just a shift in paradigm in, in natural philosophy. A shift in paradigm in natural philosophy. Mm-hmm. But for Western civilization, it is much more than that. West, uh, for them, the Copernican Revolution does not just mark the shift from a conception of the world which was geocentric, meaning to say the earth at the center of the world, mm-hmm. to a heliocentric universe. It was also an attack upon the Christian churches. It was also an attack upon the church for trying to restrict the growth of natural science. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the historical circumstances that must be borne in mind when we discuss secularism. But where Islam is concerned, um, we see that in the Quran in itself, uh, the study of nature is exhorted towards. At least the Quran highlights three grounds for research. First, psychology. That you must study within your soul. The natural world are signs that you can know the signs of God. And then thirdly, um, a, a history was also something exhorted to by the Quran. So basically, science or knowledge and Islam is integrated. Now furthermore, when we talk about the, as you say, secularism having its roots in the political sphere, um, we affirm historically that because in the development of Christianity, it lacked a sharia. 
And we said the Sharia governs every significant aspect of one's life. Due to its lack of the Sharia, the church system appropriated the Roman hierarchy, isn't it? That's how you have the papacy. The papacy is basically a, a reflection of the Roman hierarchical system. Except for the fact that its powers are now growing because it extends even to the afterlife. So it, it, its growth was... Uh, so when you say, when did the, the verse render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and unto Christ what belongs to Christ became popularized, this was not a statement of what is in fact the case, but rather an acceptance of the church or something utilized by the secular powers representing the status quo. But had, because if the church had its own way, it would rule both the ecclesiastical and the physical realms because they were involved in sacralizing secular, uh, the rules of kings. They were the ones who appointed kings and deposed them whenever it was fit unto them. And they restricted the, the, the growth of science. They put Giordano Bruno on the stake. And many more of these episodes where, uh, when, when science was trying to develop itself independently of the church. But when you look at the, the, the growth of the intellectual tradition and the spiritual tradition of Islam, despite the fact that, or in spite of the, um, the, the, the caliphs, as, as some of them were described, in terms of debo their debauchery, in terms of their injustice that they perpetrated, some of them were the, 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 the actual patrons of knowledge. Yes, Al-Ma'mun, uh, Harun al-Rashid were the patrons of the Baitul Hikmah in Iraq. They sponsored the, the translation movement. They, they sustained the activity of uh, the, the, the philosophers and the engineers, Al-Kindi as well as uh, the, the Banu Musa brothers. The Banu Musa brothers were a very unique combination of three brothers. Because one of them was an engineer, the one was a physicist, and the other was a geometrician. So they worked together uh, uh, making and constructing technological devices for the king. Now, um, so, but where, where the growth of Islam is concerned, uh, remember that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he moved from Makkah to Medina, that town, which was called Yathrib, due to the, 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 the presence of the Prophet, took the new name of Medina. And what does the term Medina mean? Medina means a city or a place wherein deen is enacted, wherein religion is enacted. It's, it's close semantic relation between religion and city. That means to say religion and city are inseparable. Why? Because the term deen, which Allah has chosen to reflect man's covenant and relation with God, or the, the word for religion here, already contains within its semantic content, its meaning content, first, the idea that living in a city is somehow natural to man. Uh, the, 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 the term deen, we know, carries within it the meaning of indebtedness. Deen, as dain, means indebtedness. So, in a, in a secular manner, when we talk about indebtedness, that means to say the society is complex enough. We're not talking about a village anymore. We're talking about a city. And the city has a ruler by the name of the Dayan. And this is what is characteristic of the lifeblood of the city is what religion is about. So when we talk about the growth of Islam in history, religion and, and power was not separable. They are in fact twins. So we, uh, I think, we oppose the statement by, I think, Lord Acton who said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this because if this were true, then the most corrupt of all would be the most powerful 
the omnipotent would be the most corrupt, isn't it? So in reality, power only corrupts the corruptible. Yeah, but or power I mean, corrupts the corrupted. Yes. But in, uh, but like if you look at like all four of the 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 founders of the four schools of law, yes, they all I believe spent time in prison during their yeah. life. Yeah. And also, it's interesting. Like one of Allah's name is a Jabbar. Yeah. Which when it is a law, it's you know it's one thing, but when it's if some a human being is a jabbar, it means a tyrant. Yes. When it comes to Allah, it means the all-powerful. Yes. But it's this idea that a human being, like a corruptible being, like a human, yes. right? A fallible being can't uh, necessarily carry that weight, you know? Yes. What's wrong? What's really interesting in our time right now is... <clears throat> I mean, we see the end game of where this whole thing is, is at. Yeah. 500 plus years of one world system. Yeah. Right? Because I think Satan Akib's thought fits well with a lot of Latin American philosophy that has yeah. put forth this idea of, of global world systems theory. Uh, Manuel Wallerstein, right? And then the group of Latin American philosophers who have this idea of coloniality, modernity, right? That yeah. coloniality is the remnant of what the colonial world system has created for us. And so with that comes systems of power, systems of money, systems of government, systems of knowledge, philosophy, right, etc. And essentially what we've moved into is this age where there's a global war against Islam. Yeah. Whether or not we want to call it that, at yeah. the ideological level, Islamophobia is so much about that. Yeah. Really, it's about making Muslims question our identity. Exactly. Question our worldview. Yeah. And move further and further into a westernized worldview because... Because a lot of this war is about, well, the, if the Muslims are the ones that are willing to live a traditional lifestyle, the most of any people left on the planet, then that's the group we have to bring in to this world system for it to be complete and for war to end, for history to be over, yeah. etc. right? And it's really crazy to think about where things are headed in the sense of technology. Yeah. Because I think what you said is like, seek knowledge all the way to China, but I think Islam has always said knowledge with limits. Yes. And what we're moving into now is an age where knowledge has no limits. Technology has no limits. Yeah. And so what's really scary is we're, we're talking about people who could imagine li living their entire lives within computers. That This idea that I watched a film recently and part of the plot was essentially that people die and their whole consciousness is uploaded into a, a computer system and then that's heaven. And at the end of the, the film, this song, this 80s song played that was like, heaven on earth mm. that was heaven on like this dunya heaven that's created in the cloud right, right? or like within technology yeah. and so what i see is that that we're what's what's we're moving from secularism to a level of anti-humanism yeah the powers that be are anti-human transhumanism and then yeah and then the sub subsequent part of that for a whole group of people is transhumanism that we want to become one with technology and for a lot of people, we, we have it in our lives, just the way that we interact with our phones, yeah. the way that we like we don't interact with books any longer. Yeah. And then these important philosophers are being lost. Even we see we see a generation of scholars who are in their seventies, like Habib, like Sayyid Naqib, who we're losing in our generation isn't we're not replacing those people, right? Mm -hmm. We see them as they're tied to the books, they're tied to the traditions, and we're tied to our phones and our computer screens and et cetera, right? And so I wonder what 
Said Nakib has, has talked much about like where things are headed in terms of technology and like the over the all encompassing worldview that has become Western life. Yes, he does say in in, a, in an address um, in his acceptance of the Ghazali chair, which was awarded to him in the nineteen in nineteen ninety five, I think, or it was in in nineteen ninety eight. In there, he says that at the present uh, juncture, um, and this was. Um, he said at the present juncture, this was more than 20 years ago, I, I believe. Uh, he said that at this present juncture, technology seems to be determining a lot of things. But that does not. But Muslims, uh, we are not accustomed to being uh, pessimistic. We're always optimistic because we're the children of Adam. The one who, has, who was pessimistic was Shaitan. He, he was pessimistic of the mercy of Allah. So that's why he, 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 that's his, his, his real mistake was this pessimism. The, 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 the thinking that God would not forgive him, or rather it's, it's arrogance preventing himself from repenting. Mm. But in the case of, of, of Muslims, we, we do know that uh, despite whatever that they are presenting to us as the end of history, that it is not the end of history. Because when Fukuyama proposed the end of history and the last man, he seems to think that, well, history would end within a liberal democracy because at least theoretically, according to him, uh, it, would, it would represent the final stage wherein there is, there, there is no longer internal, any internal contradiction. But in reality, liberal democracy is a state of internal contradiction because we affirm that the human being is not solely his animalistic desires. We know that the human being will not be happy even if he were uploaded into a computer. Uh, we know that uh, uh, happiness means something else. Because our tradition of people, yes, uh, Sayyid Naqib Al-Attas and, the, and his forefathers, remember that Sayyid Naqib Al-Attas, even his direct grandfather, his, uh, his um, uh, Naqib bin Ali bin Abdullah bin Muhsin. Abdullah bin Muhsin was a wali of his time. Yes? Uh, imagine that, just, just two generations away, even his name was being given. So that means to say we're so close of even smelling the breath of the awliya in our time. And some of them are still maintaining the way of, of life of the, of, of the Prophet and the generations that came after. So when we talk about the, 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 the growth of, uh, uh, of, of world system theory and so on, uh, but this is more like uh, just the, uh, uh, you know, the, the presentation of things to the people who don't know. That's why I remember in, 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 uh, there was one hadith where it said, Umar al-Khattab was asking about the Dajjal. And then he asked the Prophet, well, what if we were to see him in our times? He said, you'd play him like a ball. Hmm. You see, this uh, fear of the growing world systems only will impact and affect the Muslims who are not con- uh, confident, who have not reached the, 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 the level of certainty of their religion. And Prophet Alatas, we can see his life's work is precisely to challenge these fundamental conceptions which were wrong. When he founded ISTAC the, uh, in, in the 1990s, its fundamental goal is to clarify misconceptions pertaining to the religion of Islam. So that way people can always be brought to the watering place of, of the Sharia. So, uh, and Islam has always been lived in history intimately and profoundly as a system, as a whole. It encompasses ethics. It encompasses politics. There is no, uh, it encompasses science. It encompasses religion. 
So that is why when you see wherever intellectual tradition of Islam flourishes, you will see works in all these departments. In the in the Malay world also, they wrote treatises on political philosophy, on economic philosophy, on epistemology and theory of knowledge, because uh, and this is in in uh, this is our presentation of disagreement with the, the 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 people who affirm that we must take away religion from the public sphere in order for people of differences to exist. This is because the Quran, which is a divine revelation, already affirms the fundamental facts of difference. The Quran said, "It is we who created." Uh, human beings, shu'uban wa qabail, that they are created in th- different tribes and races of people. Difference as a reality is affirmed in the Quran as a science of God. So that is why wherever Islam went, culture is not supposed to be wiped clean. Language is not supposed to be wiped clean. Not even trees are supposed to be killed. And if if this principle applies, that means to say if you were if you were to travel to a place where the flora and fauna are different. That means to say they are, they are meant to be preserved like that, as signs of God. So that is why the Nusantara can appropriate Islam and still have its its own characteristics. The Turkish can appropriate Islam and still have its own characteristics. The only aspects of things which Islam removes from the minds of the people, from the practices, are the practices which are corrupt in terms of belief, in terms of practices. Uh, Islam will will remove those practices which will lead to the destruction of the community. For example, certain moral sicknesses within the community that needed to go away. But whatever that does not contradict the way of Islam. Now take for example, when it spreads into China, um, a lot uh, uh, there was a work that was done on how I- Ibn Arabi was integrated with Confucianist thought. Hmm. Now, although uh, we know that Confucianist thought is is uh, not really metaphysical in nature, but more ethical in nature, a lot of its ethics uh, is is in line with the intellectual tradition of Islam. Yes, the the, the doctrine of balance, the doctrine of uh, filial piety, so long as within certain limits set by Islam, is celebrated by the religion. And I'm sure even if Islam were to spread in Europe, and even though Prophet Latas has described that Islam and the West is in a state of permanent confrontation. What he means by that are not the Western peoples. What he means by that is not Western Western European cultures per se, not the Icelandic and the Nordic and the Celtic peoples and their ways of life per se. What he means by this permanent confrontation is the confrontation in worldview, where, for example, how he defines the West is that the West is described essentially, firstly, the one that relies on philosophy and science and empiricism alone as the road to reality. Secondly, the one that affirms dualism in its approach to reality, as if religion and science cannot be side by side, as if power and religion cannot be together, as if ethics and religion cannot be together. This dualism is what he attacks. And then thirdly, the humanism. We deny humanism as a, as, as, a, as a philosophy. And for for the culture that maintains humanism as a source of ethics, it will be in a permanent confrontation with Islam. And then fourthly, the tragic conception of life. And this tragic conception of life, you will see, permeates the entirety of Western culture and civilization from the Greco-Roman times, from uh, Sophocles, his conception of Oedipus, to that of Prometheus, to that of Albert Camus's Sisyphus to that of uh, the Macbeth of Shakespeare 
the Faust of Goethe. All these major figures have all been tragic figures because the West affirms tragedy as part and parcel of their life. And what he means by tragedy is not just that stage, presence, not just a literary theory. What he means by tra- tragedy is something which is true and real in their lives. The one that denies already Iman as the road to safety and happiness. And so therefore they, they celebrate that life is inherently meaningless, that therefore it is filled with suffering. And since it is filled with suffering, it is something to be remedied. As, as Aristotle said, why, do, why is it that the Greeks want to watch the tragedy and why do they put such a high premium on tragedy? Was because tragedy is the reenactment of a, a great person falling and the, 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 the emotion that you see through it is to, first, to, to, to effect a catharsis within you because it evokes pity and fear such that it ameliorates your own condition in, your, in life. It makes you feel better because now you, feel, you, you see somebody worse than you being expanded like that. So therefore, that, it, it, it is meant to, to somehow become like a cure for you for a while. But in Islam, this sort of pain and sickness, this depression and anxiety and all the other disorders are meant to be combat, combated by dhikrullah, by remembrance of God. This gradual remembrance of God brings about the state of calm and peace. Allah yes. Did you want Yeah, because if you look, but, but on, the, on the other hand, and maybe this isn't different from what you're saying, you know, if you look at these tragedies, uh, particularly if you look at like Shakespeare, Goethe, and, and others, and, and perhaps you could argue this for many of the Greek tragedies is that the purpose ultimately is through these characters to see the way, because some people do meet a tragic end. Yeah. And some, right, the hero with the fatal flaw. Yeah. Some people who are, and we see them every day, who are, have so many amazing qualities, there's certain qualities of their self or their nafs, which becomes an impediment for their true flourishing or true yeah. happiness, becomes their downfall. And so, I mean, many of Shakespeare's characters are really exploring aspects of the nafs and aspects of the self. Yes. Goethe was interest, interesting because, you know, he was deeply influenced by Persian Sufis, actually, yes. like Hafiz particularly. So, uh, you know, the point of tragedy as, I mean, certain people meet tragic ends. But I guess what you're saying is, to see tragedy as one aspect in light of Iman and understanding the purpose of existence, yes. right? And that, is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is that um, at least where the, the theory of tragedy has been formulated by Aristotle mm. as part of his poetics. Mm. Remember, this was, you know, in uh, 300 over BC. Yeah. When he formulated that, he doesn't meant, it is not meant as a literary theory per se mm-hmm. because he describes now the condition of the person watching the tragedy. And its purpose as effecting the catharsis. And, uh, and at, at, at the same time, the idea that the, the, the figure has to be a, a, a great man and the language has to be enacted in a certain way and it's, it, the, the execution has to be perfect. And this execution, uh, the, the, the point here is that it, there is a psychological function of tragedies mm. to the point that he, he, he rates tragedy as being superior to that of comedy. The lesser souls enjoy comedy, but great souls 
they need to enjoy this tragedy and they need it like a constant fix like that for 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 this something within their soul which is lacking now according to professor alatas when he analyzes this theory of tragedy in reality who is this really great person who who has a fundamental flaw and was brought down and now in the second act we are waiting until this reversal is to happen so that we can experience this catharsis in reality he says that this is the corruption is this is the corrupted version of the story of adam and his and his wife yeah. in heaven and the the prophet adam remember he was majestic yes uh, remember the the, the 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 angels were meant to bow before him uh, because of his possession of um intelligence and language and the ability to to order things according to, uh, to 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 name things as they are ordered according to existence he was brought low by a fatal flaw within him and this flaw was really because um uh, at the uh, shall we say because of 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 uh, lack of resolve he listened to the the the, the whisperings of shaitan and eventually made him to disobey god brought being brought low therefore and now we are living in the second act and we are waiting for the tragic end like that but this corrupted version is not the true version of the story in the true version of the story what happened the fatal flaw that led to his fall was not the end of the story the real end of the story was his repentance and his being brought back to greatness again but because they don't possess that 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 uh, you know that secret ingredient or secret uh, ingredient of guidance from god so therefore they they maintain this this state in 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 uh, the the state of enjoying tragedy what what is wrong with tragedy is to think that it is sufficient for for what you need this promethean spirit you see the west describes itself as promethean isn't it meaning to say fighting dangerously against fate and the gods protesting against fate and the gods but while at the same time in reality it is more like a sisyphus in in reality it's just pu- pushing the, the 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 stone up the slope waiting for it to fall and then pushing it up again this enjoying in this meaninglessness uh and creating for its 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 uh, for for its the purpose of its life this meaninglessness this tragic this is more like a, a quick sense of tragic reality and it is it is the kind of suffering that sometimes can be remedied by watching great pieces of tragedy and and watching macbeth and so on but in certain other times if the suffering was too strong the greeks have another word for it if the suffering was too strong it will result in sparagmos not tragedy anymore and sparagmos is this idea that uh, we have a malay word for it it's called amok I mean, it's to run amok to 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 be in a killing spree in order to 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 resolve this this pain and we and for professor alatas he sees this as part and parcel of the western culture and civilization that is dominant today as what you call world systems theory that they are trying to spread to the world they tell you that uh you um if you suffer depression you can take a pill they tell you uh, that uh, what you need for happiness is the pursuit of uh social status they tell you that uh, what you need for happiness is to become famous but we know this this as you say the, the the tragic characters in present day world they are real they are not literary figures anymore they are the comedians and actors of the world that are propped up in society but they suffer tragic fates when they take their own lives but islam brings a solution to this that does not require these tragic consequences 
So that's why we say this Islam and the West in a state, is in a state of permanent confrontation. We don't mean by that the political confrontation. We don't, nor do we mean by that the militaristic confrontation, although historically that was the case. We know that the rise of Islam challenged Christ, the, the, the dominance of Christianity as a world power. And, and for as long as Islam survives as polities, the world, the world system, as you say, will continuously try to suppress. But the confrontation is coming from the West towards Islam rather than the other way around. And wherever you see the, the, the promotion of Islamophobia and the, 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 the extreme reactions of some amongst the Muslims, these are really the, shall we say, reactions as opposed to something which is integrally within the worldview of Islam. Because where Islamic civilization is concerned, there were many instances, in fact, most of the instances where it is not, it's not equally met with military confrontation. The Malay world is the, the perfect specimen. Islam came here with not a single bloodshed. Yes, no swords were drawn. Those people who came via trade routes, they were not traders, they were professional missionaries. They came here and they, they set up Islamic kingdoms. They converted the kings. And the kings, upon conversion, uh, agreed to sponsor the, the, the Islamization movement such that the Javanese island became Islamized from Malacca. And, and this process of Islamization is continuous until today. Even we, despite the presence of the Portuguese, the Dutch, uh, the Spaniards, the British, all these European forces that has come to colonize, yet Islam remains the religion of, 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 of the locality. And now, okay. Uh, and now, that's not to say that the West is winning, right? Mm -hmm. So to say that this worldview is, is dominating the Muslims. I think that it's it's the opposite in many ways, right? The, yes. The Muslims, Islam will always be an alternative for those who want to come into a holistic existence yes. of humanness. Yes. Right. The, whereas I think that there might be these people attached to these machines and totally that their consciousness is, so to say, in the cloud. And in the meantime, the Muslims will continue existing. There may even reach a point where people may not die, yes. you know, technically, like where they can figure out how to surpass death, quote, death. And the Muslims will keep dying, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. The Muslims will keep living yes. a natural worldview. And so in that way, the best that we can hope for is that people can exist side by side and the Muslims continue to... Yeah, so in that vein, um, what are the... What do you see now, like in the future, what has happened since Sayyidina Qibla Atas has been teaching for many decades? Yes. What is, what is his legacy like presently in, in Malaysia and then beyond? And then what do you see for the future? Well, uh, for one, um, at least in the particular Malaysian context, and many uh, other Muslims who are from, from other parts of the world who are now observing the Malaysian context, what he has awoken amongst the Malays is a civilizational consciousness. The notion that uh, Malaysia as a country, maybe 60 years in terms of its independence politically, but in reality, it is a continuation of a civilization that has existed for, for hundreds of years. Um, he has left behind ISTAC, yes, the Institute of Islamic Thought and Civilization, mm -hmm. which is meant to address the world in its present state. It is meant to address the best philosophies of the West, the best philosophers of the West, the scientific tradition of the West. Have you seen the library? It's, uh, it, has, uh, it houses more than 140,000 volumes. 
when he said that there's 140,000 volumes in this library, many people say and ask, what, 4,000? Because it is uncommon for, for, for something like that to be built here. Of course, there are bigger libraries in, 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 in other parts of the world, but for him to accomplish such a deed within 10 or 15 years, 15 years now that's something. And to be, to be able to train the students which are capable of, of, of sustaining his conversation is another thing. Uh, and furthermore, uh, despite his, his, his growing age, he's now 80, 86, he, he was born in 1931, he's still writing. And just two years ago, in 2015, he published a book on justice and the nature of man, which is meant to combat the, the dominant worldview about the nature of man today, which is the anthropological, the evolutionistic, the naturalistic picture of man, wanting to return man to the special creation that he is. So he's challenging the, um, the ideological uh, control. Uh, he's still performing the art, uh, the, 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 uh, the decolonization, the de-westernization and the Islamization of knowledge. He's still performing that because he has liberated his mind. He's managed to see the world as how it was intended by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator of the universe. And we're not worried about those people who think they can extend their lives into computers for, say, the next 10 or 100 years. Because we know that this, this world, this realm that we're talking about, was not, was not meant to be a permanent realm. It is a temporary realm. It's a realm of testing of your resolve in, in terms of your faith. Now, in terms of the legacy of Professor Alatas, there still needs to be, in our time, the university that he has in mind, uh, that, that teaches the proper conception of knowledge, and, uh, and that, that continuously... Uh, de-secularizes, decolonizes, and de-westernizes knowledge, but while at the same time inculcating authentic knowledge. And the measure of authentic knowledge is that it leads to happiness. It leads to what it's meant to be doing. Now knowledge has lost its purpose. What, what Professor Alatas did was to bring back the purpose of knowledge. The purpose of knowledge is man to know himself, and the purpose of man knowing himself ultimately is to know God. And to know God means to love him and to live one's life as a shahada. So where can people that are interested in reading his works or reading works about his life and legacy from his students, uh, where, what are some good resources to, to access that? Well, his students, uh, they run a, a center called CASIS, Center for Advanced Studies on Science, Islam and Civilization. It's housed under UTM, the Technological University in Malaysia and KL. Uh, they run uh, an annual program called the Wise Summer School. It runs for an entire week that gives an introduction to the entirety of his thought. Uh, and at the same time, they also are the, uh, they sell his works also there. So, um, I mean, uh, look out for Wise Summer School. And uh, it runs uh, yearly or annually in, in usually in the months of July or August. Yes. And it's in, in conducting in English, of course. Alhamdulillah. Well, thank you for your time. Inshallah, we'll, we'll explore the University of Life a little bit more. Okay. And we look forward to reading your, your uh, thesis about yes. the life uh, of Alat, uh, Alatas's conception of the West. Yeah, we look forward yes. to hearing that. Reading okay. that. All right, thank All you right. so much. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support, The podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. And people hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it. 
and say, I know someone who would connect with this, or who would feel this, or who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support art or any type of content. And we have a Path and Present page on Patreon. The link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash Path and Present. And you'll find the Patreon link there. And yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global past and present family. One love. Yeah, I